Hey, aloha, everybody. It is episode six, season two of Coffee with Coach. We are within one month of the draft, Michael. One month of the draft. And what a blockbuster this week between the Eagles and the Saints. What was your take on that one? It's a very, very interesting. It's, it, it makes me think, are we going to see more moves? And w- what exactly do the Eagles and the Saints have in mind? I, I was shocked because of the sheer, was it going from 18 to 16? That's what surprised me that like so much. But uh, I think we haven't seen the end of that. And I think that's going to be the most important thing. You're talking about the draft. Will we get straight into it? Yeah, we'll, 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 we'll bring the main man on over, yeah, for the, yeah. Yeah. Because I'm going to tell you what, we got to make up some ground because we got to talk about all the defensive backs today, not just the corners and the safeties, because we are so close to the draft. This is a guy that you're going to see more and more of as we head closer and closer to the draft. Ali Hodgkinson, our draft guru from Pro Football Network, my man, let's talk ball. Let's talk ball, Jeff. I tell you what, that New Orleans Saints and that Philadelphia Eagles trade is super um, interesting. You know, Michael mentioned it there. I don't think we've seen the last of the permutations of that move um, in terms of what it means for both teams. I think the Philadelphia Eagles have got one eye on 2023 and the quarterback class that's coming in 2023. And I think the New Orleans Saints might even have a one eye on this year's quarterback class with that move, potentially. Well, I think, too, the, the thing that – and you're, you're right. I agree with all of that. I think Jalen Hurts – I think the jury's still out a little bit on Jalen Hurts and that there are more quarterbacks in the draft next year than this year. So they just – they had the luxury of being able to push one of those first-round picks. And interestingly enough for the Saints, when you talk about the Saints, what's the thing everybody talks about? Well, we're, they're so hard up against the salary cap. And they're not going to they, – they don't want to reload under Dennis Allen you know, or I guess rebuild, they want to reload. How do you reload if you're up against the cap? You do it with first rounders. You do it with talent that you can bring in at a rookie, at a rookie minimum or a rookie salary. So I think it's smart for both teams. Yeah. And the, the thing with the, the saints is there's a clear need for offensive tackle and there's a, a clear need for wide receiver as well. So the, the trade from their perspective, I think you look at it two ways, either, they knew they were going to have to manoeuvre to get one of the top offensive tackles, and we talked about those guys last week. They also knew they would have to manoeuvre potentially to get one of the top wide receivers. And although it's a deep wide receiver class, if you're wanting to get an immediate impact starting wide receiver, you, you're going to have to pay the piper for it. So there's well, either there's either that, or they're going to they're going to package those picks together and they're going to go up and get a guy. And how high are they going to have to go up? Are they going to have to go up to two with the Detroit Lions? Are they going to have to go with the Jets and the Giants? Both have talked about trading back at four and five. Carolina Panthers, we talked about them being a landing spot for a quarterback like Kenny Pickett, although it very much sounds like they're in the market for Charles Cross or Ike McQuano. We spoke about those guys last week. Seahawks at nine, Falcons at eight. They're all quarterback-needy teams. How high are New Orleans going to have to, to get to get that man this is going to be super interesting over the next three weeks yeah because you're exactly right when you when you think about new orleans now they have two first rounders this year that you know you got uh 16 and a 19 and you know they're good football players at 16 and 19 but what would 16 and 19 together buy you if you want to go up to you know that rarefied air you know in the top five if they have a guy that they really really want or 
you could go ahead the other way and repackage them down for multiple picks if you want. I think it's going to be fascinating to watch how it plays out. Yeah, and we talked about, um, I can't remember if it was last week or the, the week before, we talked about packaging and going down and trading down. And Philadelphia Eagles, importantly, out of this trade, not only have they got a 2023 first-round pick, so they've now got two first-rounds in 2023, they've got an additional third-rounder in the 2022 NFL draft right into that sweet spot where there's plenty of talent to be had. Um, so, yeah, su- super interesting trade. Yeah, no question. And, and again, I think we're going to really – I think we're all going to be surprised more than a few times before the end of the draft. You know, and we talked about the Saints. One place you didn't talk about with the Saints, Ollie, and it fascinates me a little bit because I think it's a neat area for them, is safety. And that's what we're talking about, corners and safeties today. So guide us through your top personnel at the corner and safety position. Well, as you mentioned in the intro, we are rapidly running out of time in the 2020 before the 2022 NFL draft hits us. So what we've done is we've packaged the top 10 players across the defensive backs. So that's safeties and corners. It's worked out quite nicely, actually. We've got four safeties, six cornerbacks in my top 10 defensive backs. Let's start at the bottom. Let's start with number 10, and that's Penn State safety, Jaquan Brisker. Now, Brisker's my fourth-ranked safety in the 2022 NFL draft class. He's my 34th overall prospect as well. So you're looking at a kid who has the potential to go first round, but he's more likely to be a top of the second round guy as far as I'm concerned. And what what are you getting with that pick late in the first, top of the second? Look, you're getting a guy at 6'1 and a half pretty much, 200 pounds, a physical safety who's a violent tackler coming downhill. However, he also combines that with... Excellent, excellent, maybe a, a touch too high, but I, I really rate his coverage skills. He's got the range to play the deep third, sideline to sideline. He's the ball skills and the length, 31 and three quarter inch arms. So he's got the ball skills, the length to be um, impactful in coverage as well. He's not quite as fluid. I don't think as some of the safeties in this class and certainly some of the cornerbacks we're going to talk to in terms of you're looking at things like being able to flip his hips, to be able to transition fluidly from a back pedal into a run. He's not quite got that fluidity of change of movement that some of the safeties and, and, and cornerbacks in this class has. But what he gives you is a solid downhill thumper who can play in the box, can patrol the deep third, coverage ability. Um, it's, it's kind of all there for Brisker as a, an aggressive physical safety prospect in this class. Now, again, you hit on something, and I want to I want to talk about this as we go through these guys because when when you look at a guy like him, uh, you don't at least I don't think that he has the coverage ability to drop down and be in the slot, which is to me if you can find one of those kinds of safeties that has those big corner cover skills and can go down and play in the slot. That's the bonus guy. That's the special, special, special guy. But I do agree with you about Brisker, particularly in a system if you're predominantly a zone team and you need that guy to fill the C gap, drop in and play the C gap, there's your guy because he is physical. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, he's super physical. Um, and like you say, the, um, some, of the, um, some of his coverage ability isn't quite 
up to the level of some of the other guys we're going to talk about. And that's why he's um, my safety four rather than, um, I know some people are extremely high on Jaquan Brisker, uh, but some of the guys that I have listed him ab- above him have the ability um, to cover, like you say, cover the slot um, and be a, an all-around three-phase um, disruptive threat um, in, the, in the backfield. All right, let's go on to the next guy. Okay, so we've got now a, a run on cornerbacks, two cornerbacks, both from Washington. Man, is there something in the water in Washington where they breed these slightly smaller, hyper-athletic cornerbacks who you talked about being able to cover the slot? Trent McDuffie, cornerback out of Washington. He's my cornerback six in this class, my 31st overall prospect. Now, he reminds me, and this isn't a direct comp by any stretch of imagination, but he reminds me a little bit of his former teammate, Elijah Molden, coming out mm. of Washington. So a smaller guy, he's five, five foot ten and a half, five foot ten and three quarters, just about. Um, 193 pounds, so he's a little lighter than some of the, the safeties and cornerbacks that we're, we're going to talk about tonight. Smaller in the arms as well. 29 and three quarter inch arms as well. So he's a he's a smaller dude, but what he is is um extremely fluid, extremely explosive. He's a guy who is extremely intelligent. So you talked about um coverage in terms of man and zone. This is a kid who can play man coverage with that athletic ability he's got. He can play zone coverage with the football intelligence that he brings. And again, that's that reminds me again of, of Elijah Molden coming out of Washington. I had the opportunity to speak to Elijah last year in the draft process, and you not speak to a guy who had a great football intelligence and could speak eloquently about the game and explain to you what he saw in his thought process. And that's kind of what Trent McDuffie is like um, in terms of he's able to read the game to a high level. He's very instinctive able to put that athletic profile to use to act upon those instincts. And I think as a result of that, he's able to play bigger than his size. And like we said before, smaller armed quarterback, but he's still able to be disruptive and he is tough as hell. You know, we talked about Dracorn Brisker being a tough guy, Trent McDuffie and and the guy we're going to talk about after, both tough physical cornerbacks, despite their their size limitations that might be strapped on them. I think that's that you're right about Sometimes we get so caught up in the measurable and, you know, I have, frankly, I've worked with defensive coaches that toward, uh, DB coaches that said, don't ever bring me, you know, an under six foot corner. Well, <laughs> I'm going to tell you something. There've been some pretty good under six foot corners. So, and I think this guy plays bigger than he measures. Who you got next? Yeah. So next up, we've got uh, Trent McDuffie's Washington teammate, and that's Kyler Gordon. Now, I think you can put a cigarette paper between these two guys for a lot of people. But when you look at Kyler Gordon, I think that picture that Michael's bought up there is the perfect representation of what Kyler Gordon is. He is physical. You watch him go to work against the, the run. He absolutely excels in run support with that physicality. Now, he's a, he's a slightly bigger cornerback than Trent McDuffie, so 5'11 and a half, only slightly heavier, 194 pounds. He's got that length at 31-inch arms, um, and you've talked about the measurables. Some NFL teams really do have such specific requisites for all positions, and we talked about it on the offensive line. Um, so, Kyler Gordon meets some of those requisites in terms of measurables. Um 
I think he's a better athlete, a more explosive athlete than Trent McDuffie. Disappointing performance at the Combine for a lot of people, but he really showed out his pro day with some absolutely incredible, insane like vertical jumps, broad jumps, proved his time in the 40. He's showcased the ability to play both outside and in the slot while he's been at Washington. As I said before, highly athletic, highly physical, possesses impressive ball skills, puts those 31-inch arms to great use at the catch point and being able to be um, physical with that length as well to be able to, to force the ball out. If it's if he's not able to get up and secure the ball at the catch point, at his highest point, he's able to get in there and get the ball out as well. So, yeah, I, I really like Kyler Gordon. I think he's probably a little underrated compared to McDuffie. Um, but for me, he's my fifth-ranked cornerback and my 30th overall prospect at this moment in time in the 2022 NFL draft process. That's two pretty good. That's two pretty good corners out of the same school. Now you gotta, you gotta like that. Talk to me about Daxton Hill. What do you want to know, Jeff? Let's talk about Daxton Hill because this kid. We spoke about athletes. This kid is um, hyper athletic. He ran under four four at the the NFL Combine. You see that um, on his tape. You watch Daxton Hill go to work for Michigan, and he flies all over the field. Looks like a, a he's shot out of a cannon on plays like safety blitzes. He can impact the backfield in that way. He's extremely versatile. And with you know people in the the draft community talking about this kid is he can play safety. He can play a slot cornerback. He could even play outside cornerback. Thirty two and a quarter inch arms, just over six foot tall, one ninety one pounds. Um, we honestly believe that that translates to him being able to play in any alignment in the NFL. And that versatility is valuable when it comes to um, the NFL draft. If you can be versatile, if you can do a multitude of roles for an NFL team, that's only going to increase your, your value. Plays like a heat-seeking missile. And the kid is, is hyper-impressive. Um, there is There is some areas of his game that... Maybe he'll struggle a little bit when he gets to the NFL level. He doesn't always look like he is physical enough um, in terms of his his actual build to take on some of the bigger blockers that he'll come up against at the NFL level in terms of trying to impact the run game. You see there, he's quite quite a slender-looking kid. Um, but I think the, the speed, the athleticism, the versatility that he brings, the, the ball skills that, 32 and a quarter inch arms that allow him to, to be so disruptive against the passing game. I think that's all going to um, play very nicely into Daxton Hill's uh, draft stock. Now that's that position flexibility is intriguing, you know, and, you know, I think the trend as you talk to coaches, pro guys is people are always looking for a guy that can give them roster flexibility and position flexibility. And this is a guy that I think can do that. I agree with you. I'm not scared about his, his the thinness of him, you know, that he looks like sometimes on tape, he looks wispy a little bit, but you know, he'll, he'll, he'll throw it up in there. He's not shy. Yeah. He's, he's definitely not shy. There's, there's no, uh, no doubt about that. And as I said before, watching him um, on safety blitzes and things like that, he will, he will go and get after it. And, terrifying prospects i imagine if you're a quarterback and you've seen daxton hill penetrate uh past your offensive tackle that's you know that you know he's going to come in and lay the pain there well let, let's talk about the, the pain layers <laughs> <laughs> moving forward i i i've been absolutely looking forward to talking about this kid 
with you all there. You've you, you've teed it up perfectly with saying the pain layers. My second ranked safety, currently twenty third overall ranked prospect, is Georgia safety Lewis Seen. Now Lewis Seen gets a. I think he got a bad reputation in, in during 2020 because he laid a hit on Florida tight end Kyle Pitts that a lot of people described as um, being ban-worthy and it was dirty and they, all this and all that. And, and it kind of gave Lewis Cena a, a bit of a bad name as a kid who was just um, a thug, an aggressive, nasty thug. Um, but when you watch Lewis Cena, when you watch him play football, there is so much more to his game. Yes, he is incredibly physical. Yes, he's incredibly powerful. He's incredibly fast as well. So you combine the speed that he can come downhill with the power and the the strength that he puts into tackling. It, it's going to look nasty because it's you know it's an unstoppable force meeting. It's just incredible watching watching this kid. And what gets lost in all that? is how intelligent he is. I I wrote on his scouting port that Lewisine's nickname should be Diagnose and Destroy because this is what this kid does. You watch him process at such a high level. He knows exactly what is going on on the field. He doesn't fall for fakery. He doesn't get deceived by tricks of deception. He can sniff out the wrong game like, unlike anyone um I'd almost go as far as saying in this class. And then with that, with the speed that we've just talked about and the physicality, he will destroy it. So diagnose and destroy. And again, I think with that, the physicality, what also gets lost is his coverage ability because he's got the fluidity, the change of direction, the the football intelligence, the speed to be able to be impactful in the um in the passing game as well. And we talked about Daxton Hill, same inch arms, 32 and a quarter inch arms on a six foot two and a quarter safety. He's impactful in the passing game. He's disruptive in the run game. Just um, just a, a phenom of a, of a 2022 NFL draft prospect. And, and Lewis Seen is a, a guy who we've had in first round of mock drafts here at Pro Football Network f- from October, November time. And he's really now starting to catch on with national media attention. And it would be absolutely no surprise for me to see Lewis Seen be off the, the board by the middle of the um, by the middle of the first round. Philadelphia Eagles, I think, is a great landing spot um for Lewis Seen. I'd say Philadelphia Eagles or the Saints, any of those any of those two teams right there, you guy would be an impact player immediately. Violent, violent, violent. That's the way I grab his game all right moving forward okay so we're, we're in some cornerbacks now we've got to run on cornerbacks and um, before we get right down to the the number one overall player on this list so number five on this list my fourth rank cornerback and 21st overall prospect is florida cornerback kaya elam elam's a somewhat of a divisive player um injury impacted his final season at florida he he was really expected to sort of kick on and make a real um, impact on college football this year. Really expect to see some um, de- development out of him to really establish himself as one of the top cornerback prospects. And the injury impacted that in his final season with Florida. There was lots of talk about him returning to Florida this year. He was he was a kid who was teaching on the on the, the verge of returning to school, um, but he's physical. 
He wraps up extremely well as a tackler. He's got the the right blend of aggressiveness and patience, if that makes sense. So you watch him as a cornerback in man coverage. He doesn't give away leverage. He's very patient, very studious in how he, he plays the position, watches the footwork of his uh, of his opponent. He doesn't fall for false moves as a result. And then he's got the speed and the athletic ability to, to be able to go toe-to-toe with some of these exceptionally fast wide receivers that we now see in the NFL. Um, so I think Kyrie Elam is, is a kid who he's still got some development to do. Um but I think he's he's tantalising as a prospect, and he has those requisite traits that you want to look for in a in a NFL cornerback. Six, six one and a half, just over one hundred ninety pounds, um, slightly smaller arms than some of the guys we're going to talk about, but still with decent length for the position. Um, and he's, he plays the game with a, an intelligence and a physicality that I think was going to endear him to NFL teams. Any concerns with the injury history? Um, yeah. Yeah, there, there was, you know, we talked about a couple of prospects while we've been doing these shows. You know, we talked about Trey Barry out of Boston College, the, the tight end with the knee brace on. There, there is always going to be um, some concerns when players have missed time with injury. And we're going to talk about a run of players shortly who have, have got injury um, elements impacting their, their draft stock. I think, um, rightly or wrongly, um, what is probably going to be more of a concern for NFL teams is you look at the history of cornerbacks that have come out with out of Florida, sort of recent history, and uh, not just cornerbacks as well, other defensive prospects that have come out of Florida, and they they never really live up to that potential uh, when they get to the NFL level for for various away from the field um, concerns. So I think that might be based something that that counts against Kyrie Elam a little bit rather than the injury history. All right. Now, um, when you talk about a mod gardener, <laughs> I, I got this one is a fascinating one to me, right? Because this is a guy that has come out now and said he is the best player, not best corner, not best defensive player, the best player in the draft. So there's no Lack of confidence in sauce. Sauce brings the sauce, that's for sure. Um, look, when you're a cornerback and a wide receiver as well, let's be honest, you have to have that confidence. In fact, let's let's not leave it to positional assignments. You know, if you're a college player who believes you're good enough to play at the NFL level, you've got to have that confidence, and and that's something that um, like Kayvon Thibodeau would would. Um, has been interviewed this week during the the pro day cycle and and various media availability. And he was asked what was the um, stupidest thing or the weirdest thing that he'd heard during this process. And he was like, well, the the stupidest thing is that I've heard is that I'm not the best prospect in this draft class. Now, you, so you have to have that confidence. And but particularly at a cornerback position, that is such a and it's so difficult to quantify but you have to have that swagger you've got to have that archetypal cornerback swagger and when you've got a nickname like source you know that this kid has got no shortage of archetypal cornerback swagger this this kid has got it and look when you've gone through your entire college football career without giving up a touchdown i think a you've earned the right to have whatever nickname it is that you feel like you should have 
And B, you'll every right to have that confidence and the swagger because that's what Ahmad Gordon has done. All he's done is protect the end zone in four years of playing college football for Cincinnati. And yeah, some of that is as time has progressed, NFL uh, college football offensive coordinators just haven't thrown at him because that's what what that's it's a pointless, it's a redundant task is trying to throw on Ahmad Gardner. And it has been at the college level. Now obviously that changes when you get to the NFL level. You've got bigger, physical, faster wide receivers. You've got, you know, the the, the whole whole level is goes up when you get to the NFL. But Ahmad Gardner is your archetypal Seattle Seahawks, Legion of Boom, Legion of Doom, Legion of Boom, whatever you want to call those guys, cornerback. Nearly six foot three, 33 and a half inch arms. He's made in a, look at those arms. He's made in a, since a Seattle Seahawks cornerback factory. Um, but he's, he, he's, he's something special, you know, aside from, from the, the size. He plays the game with physicality um he's um with for his size he plays the game with great speed and he showed that the combo that was the big thing of the nfl combine was how fast can a mod gardener be how fluid can a mod gardener be because when you're that size there is some natural um difficulties with being able to flip your hips quickly, to turn and run quickly, to be able to to do all those things that you need an NFL cornerback to do. Uh, went out there, ran a 4-4-1 at the Combine, which is great. We went over 40-yard dashes, overrated as a as a, an event at the Combine in terms of what does it, has it actually actually reflect accurately to, to football. But on, the on-field drills were huge, I think, for Ahmad Gardner, as he was the top cornerback there. Guys like the two guys we're going to talk about in a second weren't there, so he had the floor to himself, and he just looked like an NFL cornerback out there at the, the NFL combine. He looked fluid in his motions, flipping those hips beautifully like he was flipping burgers. It was just something um, something beautiful to watch him. I'd go and go to work there, um, and I think that, that translates now. Is he the best player in the class? No, as I say, he's my, my 16th overall. I don't, I don't think he's the best cornerback in the class but i love the absolute confidence the swagger and nfl teams love it too by the sound of it well you know what when you see a kid as long as he is at richard sherman kind of length and he can bend and, and he is fluid in his hips that's a unique kid and this kid is a unique kid all right now the next one is the one that i really like i mean i really like and i put on some tape of his college practices against a pretty good wide receiver. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you something. Derek Stingley got after it. I mean, he was legit. This kid I love. Yeah, Derek Stingley is such an intriguing prospect because he has been, for a lot of people, earmarked as the cornerback one of this 2022 NFL draft class pretty much since 2019. He had that exceptional um, freshman season for LSU as part of their national championship winning season where you threw a ball at him, he either batted it away or he caught it. You tried to run through him, he tackled you to the ground or out of the ground. That 2019 season was just sensational. And and for a lot of people, that was like, right, bang. Let's fast forward to 2022. Let's get him in the NFL. Let's get him in that NFL draft. His earliest year of eligibility. He's going to be the top cornerback. He's going to be a top five pick. 
job's done, close the book. It hasn't worked out like that. And let's start with why Derek Stingley was so highly rated. You talked after you talked about it there. He'd gone up against Jamar Chase and Justin Jefferson and all these incredible wide receivers that LSU have had in practice um, week on week for LSU. He is an exceptional athlete with not just the speed, but the lateral agility, the change of direction ability, vertical athleticism to go up and get the ball at his catch the highest point. Because, you know, we talked about Ahmad Garner a, a minute ago. Derek Stingley is significantly smaller. Now, he's not a small cornerback, six foot and a quarter, but he's significantly smaller than a guy like Ahmad Garner. But he's got that vertical athletic ability, vertical explosion to be able to go up and get the ball. A former wide receiver, who showcases an innate understanding of wide receiver routes, has the ball skills, um, you know, ball tracking, catch point um, work, hands, um, to be able to impact the ball as like a wide receiver. Um, and that's why he was so successful in 2019, because all of this comes together. You know, you, you watch him play football, the technical ability. We talked about Kyrie Elam and how he focuses in on his opponent's feet. You watch Derek Stingley from stance to the catch point is technically extremely proficient, very low in his stance, beautiful back pedal, always watching, never being, never being fooled. Every, every cornerback gets fooled at some point, but when he's fooled the ability to recover. So the technical abilities there, the athletic abilities there, football intelligence is there. Now the th problem with Derek Stingley is twofold. Um, from my, my perspective is, his best tape is two years ago. 2019 is the best tape that Derek Stingley has out there. Now, he would he would argue that 2020 was his best um, college football tape. For me, I think he best, Derek Stingley's best tape is two years old. And then this year, he's battled injury. He's had Liz Frank surgery, which is um, which cut his season short. So he played just three games this season before um, having season-ending surgery. Expected to run and test fully, a full go at the LSU Pro Day tomorrow, which will be huge to see how he's recovered from that injury. Because when your game is predicated on athletic ability, combined with the technical ability and the football intelligence, but highly predicated on athletic ability, if you can't recover that athletic ability after an injury like that, NFL teams are going to be concerned about that. So there's the injury concern. And then for me, when you watch some of this tape from 2021, the very small sample size, there were things on that tape, particularly when you look at the UCLA game in 2021, that I think are concerning in terms of his desire to go after it. You mentioned going up against Jamar Chase and he would get after it. You you watch UCLA and that's not the same kid that you see in those practice videos and you saw in 2019. Um, now, some of it could be playing through an injury, battling through an injury, and it really impacting his um, ability to go out there and put it all on the field. But I think at times it looked like Derek Stingley has the ability to be great, but he doesn't always have the desire to be great. And I think if that latter is the case, then that's, again, concerning a little bit in terms of NFL draft stock. Well said. I think that pro day tomorrow, there are going to be a lot of people. There'll be 32 teams and a lot of general managers and head coaches and everybody. Because this kid's, when he's right, he's special. And if he's not right, then they need to know it. So tomorrow is big for this kid. How about Andrew Booth? 
I love Andrew Bave. He's my top-ranked cornerback. He's my fourth overall prospect in the 2022 NFL draft. Now, he's not without his own concerns, which we'll get to in a, in a second. But there are very few cornerbacks, <coughs> excuse me, very few cornerbacks in not just this draft class, but I think if you look in previous draft class, if you look at some of the guys who are playing in the NFL now, there are very few cornerbacks who can compete with Andrew Booth in terms of multiple facets of playing the cornerback position. So catch point acrobatics is probably the best way that I can sum up one element of that. If you think about the best interceptions, the best pass breakups, the most jaw-dropping, gravity-defying plays at the cornerback position from the last two, three years of college football, it's highly likely that Andrew Booth made those plays. He's an incredible athlete. We talked about Derek Stingley's athleticism. I think Andrew Booth is every bit and more the the athlete that Derek Stingley is. He's fast. He's fluid. He flies around the football field. The three Fs for Andrew Booth. Um, speed, twitchiness. He's changed his direction with his lateral agility. Then he's aggressive and physical in run support. I, I've seen some people say that they don't believe Andrew Booth has the physicality to play at the NFL level. I'm not sure what exactly these people are watching because every time you put Clemson on, Andrew Booth's physicality stands out from the get-go. And he's a kid who has had some developing to do, some maturing to do. He admittedly himself um, said that prior to this season, he far um, great, greatly relied upon his athletic ability over football intelligence to make plays. Now that can lead to a ragged approach and over aggressive reproach, which leads to missed tackles and, and, and the such and the, and the like of that. But I think he, he's shown development in his final year at Clemson. I spoke to coach Dabo Sweeney about Andrew Booth and he could not speak highly enough about what that kid is in terms of a football player and a man who has developed into a man over his time at Clemson because he, he's had issues while he's been at Clemson, both on and off the field. But, a kid who is, you learn from your mistakes at the end of the day. And it feels very much like that's what Andrew Booth has now. He's got his own injury concerns. He's had to have surgery, which has kept him out of the Clemson Pro Day. And kept him, uh, kept him out of uh, being able to put on a performance of the NFL Combine. And I think one of the, those injury concerns are partly why you don't hear Andrew Booth talked about as highly as, as I view him in this NFL draft class. Um, so he, he could fall. He could fall beyond the first round and an NFL team is going to get an absolute steal on Andrew Booth because he on his day he's an incredible playmaker in all phases of cornerback play I I you know I think about this one and I, I, boy I shake my head this is one that there's going to be a lot of homework done on these next in these next three weeks and you know his interviews his visits those are going to be key absolutely key because there is a, a kind of a segment of the personnel people that i've talked to ollie some say just like you he'll be in the first half of the first round some say we'll see him in the second half of the second round so you know again I, there's a lot of there's a lot of leeway there and i guess it's just but the bottom line is in the draft you only got to have one team love you right and exactly. i'm He's got enough good tape that somebody's going to love him. Let's talk about the best guy. And this is really a bit of a surprise to me because when you look at DBs, 
a lot of a lot of people today in the coaching business anyway devalue the safety position and overvalue the corner position or or hypervalue the corner position because of the nature of the game but this is a guy that you really really like as your number one this is the guy I like as my number one overall prospect in the 2022 NFL draft and you're right. Positional value pay, plays a huge part of what will happen over the next three to four weeks. So it's highly likely that Notre Dame safety Carl Hamilton won't be the top player on um, off the board. The Jacksonville Jaguars don't really need a safety that highly anyway, so that would play into that. But positional value will mean that a guy like Kyle Hamilton may slide down boards. We've we've seen historically guys um, guys like Derwin James. Um, slide further down draft boards than their talent really warranted. And the same could happen with Kyle Hamilton. And, and certainly with the um, the season-ending injury, um, which admittedly Notre Dame said if they had been in a position to play for a national championship, then Kyle Hamilton could have come back and played. So from, their, from Notre Dame's perspective, from Kyle Hamilton's camp's perspective, the injury isn't an issue. He, he tested at the combine, and we'll get to that very shortly. Um, but from a, a pure positional value, he's, he's likely not going to be the first player selected in the draft at a safety position. But for me, I don't think you can find a player in this class who is as uncommon. And that's the, I think that's the best word to use for Carl Hamilton. He is uncommon. You know, we've talked about size a lot in the last half an hour. Six foot four, just over six foot four, six four and a uh, six four and an eighth, two hundred and twenty pounds, thirty three inch arms, and plays faster than any linebacker you will find at that size. His play speed is incredible. His fluidity with his ability to change direction, his short area explosion, just incredible for a kid of his size. Um, the arm length and the athletic profile mean that he's exceptional in coverage. Um, the, the coverage radius with his 33-inch arms is incredible. Try and make a play, a passing play on Kyle Hamilton. He's got the athletic profile and the football intelligence to sniff that out and be impactful. He's got sideline to sideline range. He comes downhill. We talked about Lewis Seen being a guy who can come downhill and shock you in the mouth. Carl Hamilton, he's bringing six foot four, two hundred and twenty pounds, flying downhill, and he's going to hit you in the mouth with it, and he's going to cause you some pain. Um, I love everything about Carl Hamilton's game. Um, he's not perfect; no prospects are as they come out of college football. Uh, if they were all perfect, then the, the you know they'd be first year all pros, multi year first team all pros. They'd be winning the Super Bowl every year if every player was perfect as they came out of college. But Carl Hamilton, I absolutely love his game. I love what he brings to the field. You know, he's a clever and high character guy. He's been to Notre Dame. They don't breed guys who give every, anything but a hundred percent, both on and off the field. Um, now. We touched upon his NFL combine. Didn't test quite as well as people were expecting. The 40-yard dash was a lot slower than people were expecting. But people tend to put too much stock in the 40-yard dash when it comes to the combine. You watch Kyle Hamilton play football and his play speed. We met, you know, I mentioned that before. His play speed is there. It's, it's evident on his tape. But then people don't talk about the 10-11 broad jump. 
that Carl Hamilton pulled off at 6'4", 220 pounds. They don't talk about the 38-inch vert that Hamilton pulled off at 6'4", and 220 pounds. Explosive numbers, and that's what you get with Carl Hamilton. You get an explosive playmaker who is physical against the run, impactful in coverage, and a leader at the heart of your defence. I think from the, the safety position, you, you can't ask for any more than that. No, I, I, there's no question with Absolutely no question. I don't care about the 40 times combine. I mean, it just really doesn't. I, I just don't see it. I, what I see is a fantastic football player who, you know, again, I don't know if you can understate um, the value or overstate the value of the length that this guy possesses in coverage and the size that he possesses. Now, He's going to, you know, as the game, this is what's really important, I think, for fans to understand. When you look at offensive football today, everybody's trying to find that hybrid tight end, right? That 6'4 tight end that's 230 and can run 4'6, and he's too big for a defensive back. He's too fast for a linebacker. Well, you better have a Kyle Hamilton that can line up against that hybrid guy. Now, will he be able to cover Kelsey his first year some and he'll get beat some right but you got a much better chance of matching up and football at the professional level is a game of matchups when you have a guy like this on your roster as opposed to a 511 you know 200 pound safety or a you know 511 185 90 pound corner those guys are going to get pushed and shoved all over the field yeah, and this is this is exactly it. This is exactly it. And you know, we we mentioned before the, the positional value. People don't value the safety position quite as much um, as they do cornerbacks, as they do pass rushers. But I think it's equally as important when you're looking at looking at building a, a football team. You need a guy in the the center of the park who is going to just be an impact maker in all phases of the game and, and a leader as well. And I think that's what Kyle Hamilton brings to a, an NFL secondary is a guy who's impactful in all three phases and a guy who is a leader, a leader on the back end who for a lot of NFL teams, you look at some of the, even the, the teams picking at the top, the New York Jets, they're a team in dire need of a leader in the, in the middle of a secondary. You look at the Atlanta Falcons. They're a team that needs players everywhere. But where does it start? Well, start the secondary. Build your build yourself a spine, and and start it with Kyle Hamilton if he's still there. Um, there's there's lots of, lots of potential landing spots. I feel like that would be great landing spots for Kyle Hamilton. I, I, I agree with you 100. And another thing that I know Michael agrees with me on when we talk about position value, right? You are, as the draft guru with Coffee with the Coach, your positional value is off the board. All right? So who are you back with us next week doing? Ooh, what should we do next week? Let's do linebackers. Ooh. Linebackers it is. I love it. I love it. Ollie, dra- draft simulator. Like everyone check out the draft simulator on Pro Football Network. Uh, and obviously, Ollie's got loads of stuff going on during the week. And we appreciate your time. Uh, weeks out from the draft. Jeff, I have some exclusive news for you. What do you uh, got? Three weeks tonight, we're going to do the people's draft. I think we're, we're going to do it. Back. He's, it is back by popular demand. The people's draft 
This is the real draft. You can talk all you want about what's going on in Vegas. What we do at Coffee with the Coach with the People's Draft is the true draft, and we are going to have it. We got to select now 32 representatives to oh. make picks of their teams. So, Michael, you got your work cut out for you, buddy. I'm going to let Jeff out of Everton this year and contact everyone and uh, get on. <laughs> um, Ollie here, man. Thanks. I'll just publicly say thanks for coming on because I know it's late and we were at, we, had, we had a few delays. So, man, thanks so much. And obviously, get everyone to check out Pro Football Network. And uh, you, you guys are killing it at the minute. Really killing it. Yeah. Bless Great. You. Thank you. Appreciate it. Appreciate it, man. We'll see you next week. See you next All week, right. man. Have a good All night. Right. All the best in the uh, here, thanks so much, Ollie, coming on because there was a bit of a delay. And Ollie, I know. Get to bed, relax. <laughs> Appreciate it. Uh, Jeff, I've, I have a few questions to ask you, my friend. I know you've got a guest coming on here. We've got a few things. Owen Thomas saying, great stuff, Ollie. Uh, there was a guy on Twitter asking, what position do you think Leeds will finish in? I'm going to say 20th. Um, you know, all I know is that we're staying up. We ain't going back. No, we're staying up. For now. Did you, know, did you know Stuart Dallas is from the next town over to me for Leeds? So he's like from where I'm from. Uh, Fred is saying, hello, fellas. Um, Emmett Smith says, Dallas' problem is the execution. Is he calling out the coaches of the players? Look, it's Dallas, man. I don't know. Like, I mean, it, There's different stuff there every every week. W- what's your thoughts, Jeff, before we get the first right, of your I'm, segments on? I'll tell you a great story. All right. Go for it. John Kay, who we talked about with Jerry, right, was a legendary head coach at USC, Went became the first head coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And they lost every game the first year. And at the end of the season, they said, Coach McKay, what do you think about your offensive execution? And he said, I'm in favor of it. <laughs> so that's the <laughs> Dallas. There should be an execution in Dallas. They ought to get rid of some of those guys that don't help them win. Right. We've got your sky segment or your it, it like Hold on, hold on. What's the name of the segment again, Jeff? What's you, from you've, you've, you've coined it beautifully. This is from the meeting room, and mm. this is this is our chance to get to you a little football. And this one is a really good one because it's one of the reasons why coaches go into TV. Players screw things up, and Chuck Pagano makes an unbelievable check on the goal line against the Saints. And they still give up a touchdown. And it's one of those ones that makes you just shake your head and go, these guys are in pro football, but it happens. To break it down, the bad of it. You wonder why coaches get into TV? It's for reasons like this. Pagano makes a great call here, all right? What you're going to see is the Bears, they've got this little formation here. So you've got a constricted formation, four threats. The corner's going to lay low. You're going to have a high player here, a high player here, a corner here. Now, in the 3-4, one of the advantages of the 3-4 is these two outside linebackers can drop. So they should get their hands on this guy and drop straight back. Hands here, drop straight back. That allows for the three-man rush to happen. Now, the two other linebackers will drop right on top of one another. I mean, it, the spacing is absolutely awful. I'm going to show it again from the end zone copy. All right. All the threats are in a very constricted space. You are max dropping. This is what we call saturation coverage. There is no place for this ball to go. Right here. This backer, straight back, get your hands on him. Reroute. 
this backer right there. This backer right there. Tony Romo talks about spot drops. These guys are right on top of each other. There's your other drop. It's six under, two deep because you're in the red zone. There's no vertical stretch. You saturate all the zones and not give them places to throw. And right there, the ball goes right to Thomas in the end zone. So you think they were in the right call, Jeff? Poor execution. It's a perfect call. And again, Michael Thomas is the number one receiver. I'm an outside backer. He's standing that close to me. I'm gonna. I got to reroute him and not let him get up the field on my left. It's, it's, it's just. It's, it's frustrating, frustrating when you, when you see, see this. this and and you, I, know I know that Chuck Pagano said, said guys, "Guys, this, this is where we got to play this and, and got to execute. Got to execute. execute." Boy, I missed that studio. Well, it'll be back. It'll be back soon. And we I was watching uh, the Denver Nuggets against the Lakers on Sunday night, and uh, to, to be fair, great guy is it Mo Mincy was was he was on your touchpad. I was going, man, Neil and Jeff should be there, but they're not soon. Um, here you've got a very intriguing thing to show us this week. I I haven't watched this. I've just added. I've just clipped it a wee bit, but. What is going on in this local Hawaii segment this week? Or okay, this is, the, uh... this is our, my Hawaii section. So every Sunday, Leslie and I usually go get in the water, and then we go to a place called the Temple Bar, which is kind of our little go-to spot. Temple after. Bar. Yeah, and it's in downtown Hilo. So next time any of you are down, in downtown Hilo, you, Hilo, you got to check it out. It's a great little spot, great food, great wine. And, you know, listening to the, to the fans out there, the, a number of them had asked, about places where you can eat and drink and you know have a good time in Hawaii, not just the cultural sites. And so this is the Temple Bar in Hilo, Hawaii, on the Big Island. Is there any relevance to Ireland here? Because obviously Temple Bars are me and tourist bar, and there's no like that. I can't tell you. There's, but there's no Guinness, for example. Like you can't. No. I. You know what? I. You know I don't order that stuff. So I. <laughs> they may have better of it, and I would never know. Um, I'm looking forward to watching this, man. Let, let, let's see how we go. Hey, aloha, and welcome to my favorite part of the show, My Hawaii. Now, we're at the Temple Bar, which is, on Sundays, kind of our traditional spot. Leslie and I will go get a session in the water in the morning, and then we'll come here for wine. And what do we got going here, Sarah? We have a ribeye carpaccio with the arugula salad made by Chef Jess. So you're at the temple bar now, and we'll take you over to the kitchen. Okay. So come on, let's see what's in the chef. Fellas, before we get to the bar. Oh my god. What are you working? We're working a beer here, and uh, oh, apparel spritz. Very good. Very, very good. All right. Okay. <laughs> If he hits you with chopsticks one more time, I know. I know. Take him outside. Yes. Yes. Jeff, I have to turn this off because the music's co- it's saying it's saying the music is copyrighted. <laughs> but it's really good. I feel bad. <laughs> I'll 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 send you a clip up, but here for a start. That food looks really good. It is really, really outstanding. That prime rib carpaccio was outstanding. And then she put together for us a, a charcuterie board. And, is and, you, maybe- and you love the sauce. I've seen the... Uh, 
we'll try and clip it up. It's because the background, like it's obviously somebody's music and it's it's right. Owen Farrell's basically saying Jeff's Temple Bar will be a lot nicer than ours. Owen, I'm sorry, but I'll I'll happily pay eleven euro for a pint of Guinness. Uh, and then Owen uh, Thomas is in give the people what they want, cooking with coach. Maybe this could be the thing, like in May and June when it gets like you know, it's like look, it's it's quiet at the minute. This is peak hardcore off season. It is like especially outside of the States. But it does get quiet, Jeff, around, around sort of June time. So maybe, maybe we could do uh, cooking with a coach. I don't hey, know. This is not here for you and me. It's here for the fans. So whatever the fans want, that's what they get. We can make you a fry up and you could drink a can of Guinness or something. We'll see the crack. Uh, here, have you any news for me? Because I know you got a guest coming on here. We recorded. We were supposed to come on at 9 o'clock, but we had a few technical issues. But we got it. Like, to, to be fair, we, we pulled out of the bag. Obviously, Ollie's been on. Great to hear his board and his top 10 players, uh, some really interesting players there, Jeff. Uh, have you anything that you want to maybe talk about before we, before we put the interview on and go off the air? In that I wanna, fans, this is a, a guy that's been very influential in my life. He was a guy that recruited me as a college player. Uh, he went on to become a great head coach at LSU, at Indiana, at Vanderbilt. And now he does the same thing I do. He does analyst work for the Big Ten Network, which is – one of the bigger uh, power five conferences in America. And he's a tremendous, tremendous football guy was an all American guard at Notre Dame been has two national championship rings to his credit and a really good guy. This is Jerry DiNardo. Um, one of, you know, one of the people that's made a huge impression in my life. And I wanted to give everybody an opportunity to get to know coach. Great interview with, with Jerry, Jeff. And look, I will chat to you next week, but folks, enjoy the interview with Jerry. Jeff, uh, mahalo, my friend, mahalo. All right. Aloha. Take care, brother. Aloha. Aloha. Yes, sir. As I've said many times, the biggest thrill for me doing this podcast is getting a chance to reconnect with some guys that have been influential in my life or, you know, uh, been a I guess I've been a blip on their timeline, but uh, certainly this guy right here goes back a long way because I knew him before I ever knew him. I was a, I'll take you back to 1973 and I am selling programs as a junior high age kid in South Bend, Indiana at the Notre Dame games. And like most kids with ADHD and all the other things, things that I had, I got my 50 programs. I sold them. I was, I was, I'd sell them out before anybody else because that way I could go in, give them my money. And then I would sneak around in the, in the stadium and hide in the columns that led out to the field in the tunnel that leads out to the field to watch Notre Dame play. Cause I couldn't afford a ticket to the game, but I could sell my programs, you know, hang around and then, avoid the ushers and go out into the stadium with the Notre Dame band and then just keep moving. So nobody threw me out of the stadium. But I remember being in that tunnel with this guy right here and his teammate, the other guard at the university of Notre Dame, Frank Pomerico. And I remember walking behind him and just thinking their asses are bigger than anything I've ever seen. I'd like to welcome former Notre Dame All-American, uh, national champion at Notre Dame, won a national championship as an assistant at Colorado, and, you know, 
and then was a head coach at Vanderbilt, head coach at LSU, head coach at Indiana, and head coach in Birmingham in the XFL, and now a outstanding analyst for Big Ten Network, Jerry Donato. Welcome to the show, Coach. Well, thanks, Jeff. It's, uh, you know, we were talking yesterday on the phone. Uh, I don't know about you, but I was getting choked up just talking to you, thinking about, you know, when we first met and you came to Maine, I was an assistant. I was a GA, actually. And if I remember right, Jeff, you may have been the first commitment I ever got in my in my coaching career. And I told everybody that I, I, I stole you from Notre Dame. You actually had an offer from them. And I convinced you that Maine was a better better option. So that's kind of how I remember the story. I don't know if you remember, but, you know, honestly, I mean, I was so, I mean, there's not a lot of years between us. And, and to be with you here and to visit with you yesterday on the phone, I got to tell you, I'm going to try to get through this without getting choked up. But thanks. Yeah. You know me, I'm not going to make it through. I know that for sure. But I will say this. After that initial commitment, your recruiting prowess took off. Because I, I was the bottom of I was the starting point. I was the bottom of the barrel. It couldn't get any worse. You had to go up from there. Yeah, there's an old saying in recruiting, if you haven't made a mistake, you haven't recruited. So maybe... Maybe I started off learning with you. I don't know. Hey, I had the same issue. I didn't have a lot of options either. The only one of the only things that got me to Notre Dame, there was unlimited scholarships back in the day. We had like 140 guys on scholarships. So I have a feeling if it was 85, I didn't, I didn't wind up somewhere else. I'm not for sure. Well, you know what, Coach? I, I, I go back to that time, and um, <laughs> I just remember uh, the 12-minute run which was the first thing we did when we came to training camp. And I was so paranoid as a high school kid that I would not be able to, you know, because Coach Bicknell had written a, you know, he sends out the summer program, right? And he, in pen, he probably did it to every kid on the football team, but he wrote handwritten note, make sure you come to camp ready to make a contribution. And so I got the, I got this training program and, I did it to the letter to the point where I showed up at 159 pounds. I, if I looked like a BB Bakila getting ready for the Olympic Games, I was so skinny. And we went out and ran the 12 minute run. And I actually was lapping guys in the 12 minute run. And do you remember there was a Stan LaPointe was yeah. one of the, was one of the veteran players. And he looked at me and he nicknamed me Don Knotts from that time on because I was so, so skinny. But I just remember, Coach, and I will say this publicly, that as a young kid that was miles and miles away from home, had no idea. Stump Merrill was the receiver coach. I couldn't even understand him. He, told, he spoke with such a big down east accent. And you saved my butt. And you made... Uh, what could have been a really tough situation, something special. And I'll always be indebted for that. Uh, I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that. Thank you. Appreciate it. Hey, now, let, let's get into, you know, when we bring a guest on, one of the things we do, Coach, and, and uh, because I think it's really fun, number one, and a lot, and it's really informative, track your football journey, right? Now, you were an All-American at Notre Dame, but you weren't the first Donardo to play at Notre Dame, correct? 
Right, my brother Larry had played, and in fact, he was really almost the reason I didn't go to Notre Dame. You know, I wasn't highly recruited. Larry was much more highly recruited than I was, but, you know, Larry was a great student, and that's not something that I can say about myself. He was a great player. I mean, he was as tough as tough guy. I, I mean, I think he was just unbelievable player. He was injured twice uh, in his career. So he did everything right. And I honestly, Jeff, I didn't want any of that. I didn't, I, I knew I wasn't going to get his grades. I didn't think I was as tough. I didn't think I was as good, but talk about how recruiting has changed. I was at prep school. I was at Tabor Academy in Marion, Massachusetts. I was away from home. And back in the day, recruiting was, they sent a questionnaire to you. You filled it out. Then they set up a trip and this and that. So I got my questionnaire from Joe Yanto, the assistant coach at Notre Dame, and I didn't fill it out because I didn't want to go there. My dad calls, Gerard, uh, Joe Yanto tells me you haven't sent back the questionnaire. Why? I said, I don't want to go to school there. He says, I'm not telling you have to go to school there. I'm telling you send back the questionnaire. Okay, the next thing is they send you plane tickets, and I don't respond to the plane tickets. My dad calls. I heard you haven't responded to the plane tickets. Are you not going to go on your visit? No, Dad, I don't want to go to school there. You don't have to go to school there, but you have to go on the visit. Anyway, so that was my recruitment. And so Larry went away for the weekend, which I think he did purposely just to, to give me my space. And when I met, you know, and recruiting was so different then, but I walked into Ari's office, Jeff, and sat across from him, and it was over. I mean, I said, I want to be with this guy. I mean, I don't care what else is in my life. This is who I want to follow. This is who I want to be coached by. I want to be part of his organization. And from that point on, it was over. And, you know, so I, I was there. You know, you go for good education. You go for this. You go for that. I went for Eric Parsege, and I wanted to win a national championship. Well, that's cool because I want to unpack that Notre Dame time a little bit because, you know, Notre Dame – and it's amazing, Jerry. I went back there uh, just last summer, just going through South Bend. So I stopped off this, and it doesn't look anything at all remotely like it was when I was a high school kid. And we lived so close to the stadium that on game days, you could, when Notre Dame scored a touchdown, you walk outside the house, you'd hear the you'd hear the fight song. And but I can remember you guys practicing at Old Cartier Field behind the ACC. And Notre Dame did not have great facilities. I don't think, I don't think that there was actually a weight room initially. One of the fathers, uh, uh, one of the priests, I think, had a had a ran the weight room on campus at Notre Dame. There was no. I'm trying to think what the guy's name was. There was no. Zang, Father Zang. Yeah, and now you go back there, and it is incredible. How many people? sat in the stadium when you were playing at Notre Dame? How, what did it hold? I want to say 57.09 or 59.07, whatever it was. It was under 60,000. And we didn't have a weight program. You know, there was only a handful of us that really left it. We had a conditioning program that uh, Coach O, we called him Old Man Murph because his son Dennis was on the staff, but it was John Murphy. He kind of ran the off-season program. But you know, Jeff, it was so much different back then. You know, it wasn't better, it wasn't worse. It just, it just was really different. We, the time commitment that we put in is nothing compared to what our athletes do now. And you know, I, I, you know, I have the luxury of being involved with college football since your your freshman year. 
at Maine. I, and I have never stopped. I was with the XFL, but we still drafted players. So, so I've been involved in this game. And my perspective probably is drastically different than people my age that played back in the day. Because their vision of college football is only through the eyes of back in the day. You know, as a coach, managing alumni was always an issue. You had to be, I wanted to be nice to them. But their perspective, like like my brother Larry, you know what college football is for him? It's four years of Arab siege. That's it. Yeah. You don't have any problems. I mean, you did what you were taught. I mean, so, so for me, I've seen this evolve really now to night and day different. But I'm one of the few people, I think, my age that love what I see. I think these are the smartest players. I think they're the most dedicated players. I, I, I think these, these players nowadays – they are more involved in social issues. I think they're doing so much more than we did. And so I see all the good that's going on nowadays. I don't see it as, oh, back in the day, you know, that this was better and so on. So well, we're gonna we're gonna talk a lot about the you know the differences today, but compare the you know, because again, it's hard to compare across timelines, but I think I some of the things you said yesterday really, really struck me hard. And I think you're, you have a unique perspective on college athletics that needs to get hurt because as you said, you've remained close to the game and the people who play the game, the guys that coach the game, the whole deal. Jerry, when you talk about era parsegia, and I you know for, for again, for us as fans and, and as people were around the game as high school players, he was almost, I mean, Duffy Doherty, Eric Parsegian, John McKay, they were the elite, the like the right. gods of the college football world. And, you know, was he as thoughtful and I don't know if quiet's the right word, but he just always struck me as a real deep thinker, not a yeller and a screamer, but had great, great football teams every year, extremely well coached and kept a staff of guys together. You talked about Joe Yanto, the Penguin and George Kelly and Tom Pagna, a group of coaches that stayed together at Notre Dame for a long period of time. And Notre Dame didn't pay particularly good at that time. And how was he, was, he, was it just the fact that he was a great leader of men or what was unique about Eric? Well, I'll start with the uniqueness. You know, you, you, know, you mentioned Duffy Dara, you mentioned John McKay. There was also Bear Bryant. There was also Woody Hayes. There was also Bo Schembecker. And Arrow wasn't a grinder. Arrow was someone, I think, way ahead of his time. It was towards the end of the Vietnam War. So the, so the protests really weren't that intense. But there was still some of us that wanted to know how our country was going to resolve the issue of, of Vietnam. And so some of us got involved in a little bit and and he was fine with that i mean he him and father hesburgh were on the same page you know no violence no destruction you know say what you want do what you want uh, feel free to do that uh, we didn't have curfews i you know nowadays you know we we have so many medical people that and which is a good thing that they really watch uh make sure that that the players are being cared for we had the 12-minute run jeff like you alluded to earlier uh, to earlier since we started talking, 
But one day that we just, we reported back to camp, the humidity in South Bend was crazy. I mean, and here's this guy in the 70s canceling the conditioning test. When you hear about, you know, a Bear Bryant down in Junction and, and you yeah. hear Woody. I mean, so he was unique in that way. He, he was much different. You could always, you could go into his office, you could talk to him. He just wasn't a grinder. You know, I coached in Eastern Michigan. I became close to Bo and, and the Michigan staff. And Bo would say to me all the time, and I can't use the exact language that he used, but he said that uh, Aaron was the only coach he ever knew, and he used a word to describe him, that was successful. In other words, he was too nice of a guy to be successful in, in that environment, and yet he was. And, I mean, he was hard on us. I mean, I'm not saying – you know, it was easy. He was up in the tower. I can remember he was up in the tower and I missed the block and I'm a sophomore. It's the first, you know, this is when you weren't eligible as a freshman. So sophomore is the first time you could start. And he was yelling down. John Dampier was a veteran guy who's playing next to me. And Ari says, Dampier, what happened down there? And John says, well, Jerry missed the block or Jerry forgot. You know, so he said, Jerry, who's Jerry? I said, come to me. <laughs> Anyway, so you just had an air about it. You wanted to be with him. I'm not sure guys in my generation were running to practice saying, I can't wait to see what Woody has to say to me today, right? Or I can't wait to see what Bear Boy has to he, You wanted to be around him. I mean, it was crazy. It was absolutely crazy. I loved him to death. I love him to this day. We stayed in touch. Uh, uh, I, you know, I, I can't say enough about it. I, I, I'm just so fortunate. You're a kid from New York City, comes to South Bend, Indiana. Your father's a policeman in New York. And you end up being a, you go to Notre Dame, Jerry. Notre Dame, one of the prestigious academic schools in the, in the world. You become a football coach. How much of Arab Parsegian had to do with that? Quite a bit. You know, two of my older brothers are lawyers. Larry's a lawyer. My older brother, Bob, is a lawyer. Uh, and that's kind of what I wanted to do. And so as it was winding down, uh, me and my, my, my playing days, you know, I wasn't drafted. I was still in South Bend going second semester. I, I just said, you know, I want to go to coaching. I originally wanted to go into high school coaching, be a high school teacher and coach. At that time, Jeff, I couldn't get a job. I mean, there was no demand for it teachers and so Joe Yano helped me with some high schools in New England because he, he recruited New England that's where I wanted to live because of my experience at Tabor Academy when I did my postgraduate high school year and then I started looking at colleges and Springfield College in, in central Massachusetts UMass with Dick McPherson uh, and then Walt Abbott in Maine I said I'm going to be in Portugal if I keep going in the same direction I mean so I, you know, luckily there was a job at Maine and, and that's how it started. And from the first day that I was a grad assistant, I no longer had any desire to do any high school or, or I, 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 I was absorbed with the game constantly to the point where I brought the projector home and watched it on my, my refrigerator for the screen. And so my, my focus changed from just getting my master's degree at Maine and going back to high school I just fell in love with the game. I fell in love with the science of the game and the relationships of the game. I really couldn't get enough of it, but to a point where it probably wasn't healthy. Well, um, you, you, you take that one year at Maine as a graduate assistant, moved to Eastern Michigan. You mentioned 
being close to Bo on the staff at Michigan because those schools almost butt one another. But then you jump off and go with a Bo assistant to Colorado, to the University of Colorado, which at that time had to be one of the worst programs in America. I think they might have had the worst record. They and Northwestern at that time really, really struggled. You and Coach McCartney go to Colorado, and lo and behold, you become national champions. And there's a lot of great stories about that Colorado time, Salinesi and the whole thing. But how were you able to go in there, Jerry, and all of a sudden Nebraska becomes, and I remember this, Coach Mack doing this. He said Nebraska was going to be your rival. And you hadn't beaten Nebraska, I don't think, in a long, long time, right? But all of a sudden, you knock off Nebraska, and then you take off. And what was it about that project that defined, you know, when you knew you had turned it? Well, let me, let me step back first, Jeff, and say it was, for me, it was the perfect place, the perfect time for the perfect place. Like, for instance, Maine. Here's what I learned at Maine. Uh, I learned passion from Walt Abbott, who you know, passion for school, passion for life. Then Jack McNell comes in. I get a little bit more into the X's and O's. But basically what I learned at Maine is what I didn't know. Then we go to Eastern Michigan, a really, really tough job. But I'm learning to recruit a little bit better. I'm, I'm observing Big Ten coaches because we recruit the same areas, different players, obviously. But, you know, I had the same schools as the Minnesota coaches and the Northwestern coaches, obviously Michigan, Michigan State. So I, I learned through observation, and I got to know Bill McCartney on the road recruiting. We were recruiting different players in the same high school, so we started spending time together, and he actually was trying to get the Michigan State job at one point, and he and I were having coffee in between the last school visit and the first home visit at some Waffle House or whatever it was, and he said, I'm going after the Michigan State job. I want you to come with me if I get it. I said, okay. He doesn't get it. In fact, Bo's furious at him for even trying to get it, okay? So he's got he's to manage that with Bo, almost cost him his job. And then next thing you know, we get the Colorado job in June. And why I say it was perfect timing, I had learned just enough of work habits and recruiting a little bit that if I followed what this guy was going to do, I was going to be prepared to be a head coach. It's a little bit like what Nick is doing at Alabama now, right? Although... You know, people say there's, there's people going back there, but I, I've done some search work for athletic directors. And I, one, one search I was doing, I interviewed a couple assistants coaches for, for Nick. And I asked, what's it like? And he said, if you want to pay attention, we're not yucking it up every day, but if you want to pay attention, you, it's an unbelievable experience. And that's what Bill McCartney was for me. He was a great recruiter. He was a great motivator. He lacked offensive not knowledge, but he didn't have an offensive scheme. And it took us a while to find the, the answers there. But he was, he was like Aaron to me. I mean, he was someone that I wanted to be around, but he taught me to be a head coach more than anything else, even, even Aaron, because I was a player for Aaron. But being mm-hmm. an assistant coach with Bill McCartney for nine years, Jeff, I get it. I mean, I'm like the luckiest guy around. It's, it was an unbelievable experience. All right, now I I I gotta know this for me, right? Because I I watched it, didn't understand it, didn't know where it came from, didn't know how you got to the concepts and how you built it. 
but you had a unique offense at Colorado that got titled the I-Bone. And it was really triple option football from the I formation, putting the, putting the wing back in short motion, all kinds of really unique things for the time. You know, there were other people running the option, but you guys really found a unique system. How did that happen, Jerry? Okay, so we went to Colorado. We were going to throw the ball all over the lot. In fact, the headline was Max Prescott. We were going to be the BYU of the Big Eight. So we were throwing the ball a lot. That didn't work. So Matt comes to me. I was the offensive coordinator when we were throwing the ball, and he says, I want to go to the option, find the best option for us. So uh, Lou Holtz was running the I option. Larry Beckish was the offensive coordinator. I studied him. Uh, then uh, Jim Wacker was at TCU spread. I, I studied him. And then there's Larry Lacewell, there's Fisher DeBerry, and there's Ken Hatfield running the wishbone. And when I learned the wishbone, when I learned the concept of wishbone, I was totally convinced that there is no better running attack possible because that frontside linebacker and a two-back attack can always scrape when the five technique closes. In the wishbone, that linebacker can scrape, but that extra back can seal them. So it was right. the five scheme, like 32-5 was the triple option. So we put the triple in, and we were doing great. And, and we had quarterbacks that could, could run. And then uh, Mark Walters became our quarterback. In fact, his son is defensive coordinator in Illinois now. And Mark was a more traditional quarterback. So we went to the I formation. Mark gets hurt, season-ending injury in the spring. Our second quarterback is more of a runner. So we're doodling around, and we come up with the eyeball. And so what the eyeball was, it was the wishbone out of the I formation with an offset back. And that offset back was in motion, as you mentioned. But he was also the front side of the triple option where we could always block the straight linebacker. But Jeff, here's, it's so, I mean, this is why I love the game. So the first game we won, I think, that we weren't supposed to win when we went to the eyeball was at Iowa. Hayden Fry, Hayden Fry was the coach. Darian Hagen was our quarterback. Eric Bieniemy, Coach yeah. Eric Bieniemy was our great back. And so we bust off a really big run, and we wind up winning the game. So Mac and I, Coach Mac and I, are sitting in the buses, and we're listening to Hayden Fry's post-game press conference, waiting for the players to come in. And they ask Hayden, what happened on Enemy's big run? And here's what Hayden said. He said, we were in an option defense on that play. Now, here's – Mac and I looked at each other. So here's my point. If you're an I-formation team, penetration is how you stop the run game. If you're – defending an option team and you penetrate, we're just going to give the ball all day, right? Because that, and so we learned to call the game this way. Are they, are they in a I formation defense? If they are, let's run the option because they'll be soft. If they're in an option defense, let's, I'm sorry. If they're in an option defense, let's run the I formation because they're going to be playing on the line of scrimmage. So that, the, so at the end of the day, the concept became, the defense had to either defend the wishbone or the eye formation. And once we figured it out, we thought we had it. Crazy stuff. What it, was. it was great. And you know what? It's funny you mentioned Darian Hagen because I coached Darian. And uh, we're in Las Vegas in 1995. And he was our third quarterback. And we got short on defensive backs one day. And I asked Ron Meyer, who was the head coach, I said, Skip, can you, would you give me Hagen for practice today? You know, you're not going to use him. He's over there standing around the whole game. 
And Darian came over, played cornerback, and played five more years as a corner. And, you know, just a great athlete. I mean, a really, really great athlete and a great kid. Was Vance Joseph on that team? Was who? Vance Joseph on that team? Yeah. You're yeah. at Colorado? Yeah, he was. I, yeah. I, I thought so. And, you know, uh, you had another guy, an offensive lineman by the name of Joe Gartner. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And Joe was a really good player. For, he was in Vegas also. He had gone to the Packers. He was drafted, I think, in the third round by the Packers and played for the Packers for a little bit. One of the most unique dudes I've ever been around. And we had a, a defensive lineman named Tom Backus from Oklahoma. And we're standing on the sidelines at the National Anthem before the first, first game. And Backus kind of elbows me like this. We're standing there for the National Anthem. And and he elbows me, and I look up at him, and he and he go, looks at me, and he goes, looks looks down, right at Garton, and I'm like, and I and then I look down, and he, Garton is peeing his pants before the game, <laughs> and he told me that that was Joe Garton had to pee his pants before every football game where he couldn't play. So, just one of those little tidbits that you pick up along. That's crazy. You know, um, yeah, we, we, we had a group there led by Mike Berry, the offensive line coach. So we didn't know who we had to watch more of Mike or the players. But, uh, you know, Darren Hagan, you know, he was so smart. I, I mean, I've coached a lot of guys. Uh, Kevin Falk was like this at LSU, that they could line up a tailback, a quarterback, and know what everyone's doing. I mean, they just were such great conceptual learners. But the one thing I always appreciated from Darren Hagan, I don't know if you know this, but when you run the option, Okay, and you break it for 10 and you pitch the ball, the, the, the tailback gets the credit for all the yards, not just what. So we were winning one day and, and Hagen and J.J. Flanagan are running down the field. There's somebody that has no chance to tackle Darian. But anyway, Darian brings him in and he pitches it to J.J. And, and Darian knew this. So he, he gave like J.J. like 90 yards. And he did it on purpose. You know, he did it because he wanted it. You know, he wanted to give J.J. the yards. I mean, I just love that. I just loved his intelligence and, and what kind of teammate he was. And he was fun to be around. Him and Gary Barnett had a ball, I got to tell you. He joined yeah. Gary would tell us things about meetings, and it was just so funny. Hey, um, you surprised me then because you're on top of the football world. You're offensive coordinator in the national championship team. And you make a decision to go to one of the hardest jobs in America, Vanderbilt, and really do a great job at Vanderbilt. And I remember talking to you. I don't know if you remember this conversation, but I remember talking to you at that time. And you said to me that you guys were going to turn it at Vanderbilt. And one of the reasons that you were going to be able to turn it was I cannot remember the guy's name that was the recruiting coordinator at Colorado, you were going to get him to come to Vanderbilt with you because you got, you felt that guy was such a great recruiter and recruiting was such an important part of creating a, you know, a, a winning program. Do you remember that story? Do you remember that? Yeah. Jeff, Rick George is the AD at Colorado now. That's who it was. Rick George is that right? worked for Mike White at Illinois with Lloyd Carr. Uh, yeah. The connection. Lloyd Carr recommended Rick to Bill McCartney to be our recruiting coordinator. And then uh, when I left Colorado, came with us to 
Vanderbilt. He didn't come with this at LSU because he wanted to be more administrative. He was trying to get away from the football thing. But he was great. Uh, I mean, we, I mean, our 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 record recruited uh, at at Colorado speaks for itself. But we we had some really highly recruited guys at, at Vanderbilt too. And our our philosophy was, and I think this is one of the reasons they hired me is I was convinced, I could, if I'm convinced, I usually can convince some other people that there are enough really smart guys academically. I mean, football players are some of the most intelligent people you'll ever meet, okay? Now, some of them, like me, not book smart, but I mean, they understand concepts. They're really just smart, intuitive people. But there's a lot of book smart people that also can play the game. And I just convinced people that there was enough of them. And I would say, you know, maybe another school in the SEC can find enough players in five schools. We're going to 15 schools because maybe in every other school, there's not anyone that is, is good enough academically. Plus, the faculty at Vanderbilt, they bought into, hey, let's have a committee. I'm going to tell you a story. I won't mention his name. I recruit somebody from East Chicago. I love this, Jeff. And he has 720 on his boards, okay? He has, at, he has 720 on his boards. In, and I mean, that's, that's his AC, his SAT, right? 720, okay? And so we're meeting with the committee and we're going through his, his transcript. And the coach, Hal Hunter, I don't know if you know Hal, he's a longtime offensive line coach. He was recruiting this guy. And the guidance counselor told Hal that the school that he was in was 50% either tardy or absent every day. 50% of the population was either late or didn't show up. This guy was never late and never missed a day in class for four years. His grades were good. He had like a three point something, but that, you know, but the test score was a problem. And that faculty said, faculty appreciated that story. And they let him in. He graduated in four years. Awesome. And so we had that go. I guess what I'm saying is we, we had that kind of chemistry at Vanderbilt. And there were a lot of hard feelings when I left it all out, rightfully so. But I took the job because I, I, I thought we could be good. I, I, I really did. James Franklin proved it years later. Right? You know what, though? I remember, though. I remember in, those con in that conversation, you had tried to get the Columbia job. Because you were ready to be a head coach. You were ready to be a head coach. Now, win at Vandy, go to, go to LSU, two Western Division championships in the SEC, SEC Coach of the Year. Go on to Birmingham in the XFL, then finish your coaching career. And, and you're going to coach. You're like me. You're going to coach to the day they bury us. But because I've seen your segments on Big Ten Network. And listen, fans, if you want to watch a great, great show watch what jerry does and when they turn him loose with coaches on big 10 network because that's real football i mean that is real football but went through all of it coach through all of the time in the game right what has been the single most rewarding aspect of what you've done in football i think it's a great question that when we first take over a program, whether it be Vanderbilt, LSU, or Indiana, that uh, we embraced who was there. It wasn't 
the old guys, guys, new guys, guys. And, you know, there's a book called Corporate Culture that Terry Beal wrote. Terry Beal was a faculty member at Vanderbilt. And so I was studying to get an advanced degree while I was at Vanderbilt. And so this idea of team culture came to me. And so I would have these three lectures during, during the off season. And when we first got to a lot of places, I think we did a really, really a lot of good academically. You know, the CFA, I don't know if you remember that, College Football mm -hmm. Association, they would give academic awards. And when I got to Vanderbilt, they had never won the award, but they were always at that 70% honor mention. That's kind of how they did it. There was a winner, and then there was 70%. Well, one of our goals at Vanderbilt was to win that award, and we actually did. We, we won it along with Notre Dame and Boston College one year. When I went to LSU, they never made the 70% criteria. We, we did that. So I think we did a lot of really good things academic i think we did a lot of really good things football wise my regrets are that i didn't do a better job maintaining it and i think about the failures uh, more than the successes uh but we we had we had the knack to energize a program energize young people we certainly had a knack that if they didn't go to school we weren't going to come to the locker room uh so a lot of good, real good things early. You know, you mentioned the two Western Division championships. You know, I that I should have been able to keep that going. You know, you know why not? You know, LSU's a great job, but you know I made I, I made some bad decisions. Indiana, uh, Indiana was really really tough. I, I kid that I had three ads, three presidents, and six mission statements, uh, and you know that, that was tough. But I, I probably could have. I probably could handle it better. My biggest problem at LSU was when Mark Emmett came in, I felt like he wanted to be the team owner. And that didn't sit well with me. And I, I probably could have reacted a little bit better. But anyway, uh, I think we hit the ground really running fast. And I think we did a lot of good academic stuff. And we did a lot of good football stuff, Jeff, but not enough. We, we should have been more successful. Well, now, let's go into a look at, you know, what you do every day now, which is the Big Ten. You're right, which is a one of the Power Five conferences, a conference with traditional rivalries, hundreds of years old, but a conference that's kind of taken on a new face in the last, you know, little bit. Maryland now is in, Rutgers is in, Penn State's in, Nebraska's in. How has the conference morphed, or how has it evolved with those? what would be considered outsiders in traditional Big Ten thought now in the conference? Well, to answer how it's evolved, I think you have to go back to why it evolved, okay? So first ad was Penn State, right? Uh, the Penn State was added by the presidents. None of the coaches even knew. This is when Bo and Woody were coaching. They were furious that they weren't involved in the decision. But I, I think anybody, at any time would take Penn State. I mean, they were an independent, right? So, I mean, there's really no more independence other than their name right now, right? So, to, to my knowledge, I mean, big names. So why did they take Penn State? Because they're Penn State. Why did they take Nebraska? Well, you know, 12 teams, two divisions, playoff, great, great tradition. It's contiguous, right? Jim Delaney didn't want any space between all the schools. And so Nebraska came in, Tom Osborne 
I, I did Enzo and Enzo with Tom Osborne, which is one of the things I do on the Big Ten Network. And I asked him the same question, you know, why the Big Ten? He said, well, we thought we were going to be left out in the cold because the Pac-12 was raiding the Big Eight and so on and so forth. And obviously he said it's a great conference and it did great things for all of our athletes, not just football. So Nebraska was a great get. Okay, then, you know, now, you know, now we're talking about the East. Well, I know you know this, Jeff. There's a lot of cable boxes in the eastern part of our country. Okay, and those cable boxes aren't free. And so to take on Rutgers and to take on Maryland and still be contiguous, I think it had a lot to do with the finances of the Big Ten Network, the SEC Network, the Pac-12 Network. So why Penn State? Because of Penn State. Why Nebraska? We go to 12, we have another game, more revenue, two divisions, leaders, legends, okay, now East and West. Why Maryland and Rutgers? A lot of cable boxes. Uh, so I think, I think that's, that, that's, that's, how I, that's how I see it. Now, when you look at the when you look at the league, and again, as a kid who grew up in, in the Midwest, and the you know the Big Ten when I was a kid was Michigan, Ohio State, and then everybody else was the, it was the other eight. You know, I look at schools like Wisconsin, what Barry Alvarez was able to get done at Wisconsin, and then to be able to because you mentioned it when you're talking about your situation. It's one thing to get to a level of excellence. It's a completely other thing to continue to play at that excellent level, to build, you know, not, not only build it, but to sustain it. And Wisconsin to me is a tremendous story because, you know, when I was in high school, it was Rufus Roadrunner Ferguson and not much else at Wisconsin. And they would get pounded every week. And Iowa, you, you talk about Hayden Fry, he turned it, and then Kirk Ferenz has come in and continue to build it and sustain it. Um, it's not just the big two anymore. There, there's good football being played throughout the conference. Yeah, and let's, let, let's spin it forward because my concern is we're going to give up the divisions, okay? So it, it, back in the day, as you mentioned, it was Ohio State and Michigan, right? It was the big two of the little league. I mean, that was, that was the punchline, right? Then you go to divisions, and now, you know, Michigan and Ohio State are in the same one. Now Penn State's in the same one, so you're really heavy tradition-wise in the East. So Iowa, Wisconsin recently have done the best job in the East, along with Northwestern. They've, they've won some Western divisions. And so you go to Indianapolis, and it's the historic Michigan. Well, this is the first time they've been there. It's basically been Ohio State. But you could look at the East and say – if everyone's maximizing their resources, it's going to be Ohio State, Michigan, Penn State. If everyone has got the best coach in the world for their school and hit on all cylinders, the three best jobs are Ohio State, Michigan, and Penn State. You've, I mean, there's no doubt that's the order, in my opinion. If you go to the West, man, it's a, it, it, there's no runaway. You got Iowa, you have Wisconsin, Pat Fitzgerald's one or two out of the last four years. So here's my point. Once they break up the divisions, and they, because of the playoffs and you start having these huge conferences without the divisions. Here's one thing I don't like about it. A team like Iowa played Michigan this year. Michigan certainly had more talent, but Iowa could have won that game. Not the way it transpired, but you only can play 11 of those suckers at one time, right? So, so we know the East is going to have the deeper roster. That doesn't mean that Iowa couldn't have beat Michigan. It doesn't mean that Northwestern couldn't have beat Ohio State. So we're taking away – 
a chance for all those Western division teams to actually win a big 10 championship. And so to me, I've explained why I think we've got the 12 and then why we got the 14 and now we're two 17 divisions and there's talk about breaking the divisions up. And what I'm going to miss if they do that is a chance for the West, a, lead, uh, a less talented team still to be a champion. Right. Now, yesterday we talked and, and we talked about the, the changes in college football that you see as positive. And there are a number of people that are out there that are critical of it. Um, but I really thought yours was a refreshing take on the situation now with the transfer portal, with the, the NIL situation. You see those as positives for college football and particularly for college football players. Yeah, so so let's, let's start with the NIL, the ability for uh, a player to make money off the name, image, and likes. Kevin Falk, who played for me at LSU, you know, there were 60,000 jerseys with Falk on the back in the stands. Now, a lot of that was Kevin, but also some of that was where he was playing, right? So revenue maybe should be shared there. But let, let, let's go back. Arab Parsegian wasn't allowed to make any more money than the highest paid faculty member on Notre Dame's campus. So Arab started an insurance company. He did Ford commercials. He found other ways to make money. Bo Becker left Miami, Ohio, went to Michigan. His wife, Millie, said after he took the Michigan job, she said, honey, how much are you making? He says, I don't know. I didn't ask. Multiply my first check by 12. Okay. So, <laughs> so, 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 so that was the life of a coach, right? You, you weren't poor by any stretch of imagination. You weren't paycheck to paycheck. You were making a good living. We all had summer camps that we used for our vacation. So the players weren't allowed to leave. The, the coaches weren't getting rich. We were kind of all in the same boat. So then in recent years, and I think this started with the state legislation in California. They're looking at college football and they're reading about the $7 million that the head coach at USC is making, the 2.1 that the offensive guy who calls the plays is making. And the players, uh, at least they're finally getting the Pell Grant. Remember, there's, there's a history in college football. Yeah, I remember that. When you filled out your Pell Grant at Maine, if you qualified, you didn't get the money. That's right. Athletic department took the money. Then when that was exposed, then they used to split it. And then, then when that was exposed, they said, You're, you have to be kidding me. So now, so then they got the Pell Grant. Then it was cost of education. What's cost of education? It's everything above room, books, board, and tuition, right? It's flying home and it's all out. So the athletes financially have improved down through the years. But once it became generational wealth, and you and I talked about this uh, again yesterday, right now there are 222-year-old graduate assistants that are on track to become millionaires. Because if they're good GAs, they can be good assistant coaches, and they're going to be good coordinators. And be. So, so, so we're talking about generational wealth. So, so why aren't the players sharing in that? They, sh they should be. They should be. And, and that's why I'm all for it. You know, are the rules a problem? Yes. So we go to Congress for an answer? Seriously? Okay. <laughs> Mark Emmett says, I want Congress. Real. Let's wait for Congress to solve the problem. Okay. And so that's not going to work. So, yeah, there's going to be some problems. The other thing is a transfer portal. Okay. A couple of things about the transfer portal. Uh, your scholarship, my scholarship, wasn't a free education. We we earned it, okay? We 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 earned every bit of it. 
I got into a school that I wouldn't have been able to get into. That was my payoff. I didn't belong there academically, but they gave me a chance to graduate from a school that I would not be admissible to, and I will be eternally grateful for the rest of my life. And that was enough for me. And you know what? The other thing about the NIL, what about the quarterbacks going to get $4 million? What about the right guard? Tom Clements could have $4 million. I, they couldn't have won the national championship without me. They couldn't have won it without Tom. So there's no locker room problem for, for people that think, you know, this guy's getting paid and you're not getting paid. But let's go back to the transfer portal. I know I'm talking really fast because I think we're running out of time. But I said this to you yesterday. I say this to a lot of people. The, the transfer portal and the non-penalty for transferring only impacts five sports. Men's football, men's and women's basketball, hockey, and baseball. Every other athlete has always been allowed to transfer. He or her could transfer anytime they want, and they never had to sit out. Now, don't you find it a little bit interesting that the five sports that I mentioned, especially men's basketball, football, women's basketball, don't you find it interesting that they are the ones that there's the most money involved, the budgets involved? Doesn't it make sense that the $7 million coach now is going to make it harder to manage his roster? There's not many $7 million jobs a year. That's not hard. Okay. So is it a little harder for Lincoln Riley to manage the Southern Cal roster than John McKay? Of course it is. But John McKay made $100,000 a year if he was lucky. Lincoln Riley's making $7 million. So let's stop getting mad at the players for leaving and transferring. You know, it wasn't bondage. It was a scholarship. Okay. And anyway, I've gone on enough. I'll shut up. No, I and it is, and it's. I think it's a great take. And and you know what? When you when you look at it from that perspective, then you really it does make sense. How in the world can these kids who are putting their health at risk in front of hundred thousand people not 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 be rewarded for that? We got some questions. I want to get them because there's from Scott from Newcastle in the UK says, Jerry, what is the best thing about working in the Big Ten? Well, for me, it's getting to watch practice, which, you know, we're, we're a little different media uh, organization. I mean, we're not trying to break news. We're, you know, we're, we're partners. The Big Ten conference actually owns 49% of the Big Ten network. Fox owns 51%. So to answer the question, we get to see practice. I've sat in meetings. You know, every coach is, every coach is a little different. Mark Antonio at Michigan State, he let us sit in the team meetings. We've been in position meetings. I mean, to me, as an ex-coach, watching the drills that the rest of the media don't usually say, man, I wish we had done that drill. Oh, we did that drill. Oh, what a cool, I mean, so I, I'm, I'm still learning. I can't get enough. I can take this tablet that I'm using right now and I can watch every game video in the entire country of, of, of every school. So I have more access, I think. So that for me, that's the best thing with the Big Ten Network. We're not breaking news. We're not 60 minutes. We're kind of partners with the schools. That doesn't mean we won't cover a tough issue, but uh, we get an inside look, to say the least. Great. And, and we have one from uh, students. From Ireland, Cathal from Dublin says, Jerry, with the Fighting Irish coming to Dublin next year, are you going to visit? <laughs> no, I'm not. Uh, but I have to change the subject here. You know, I, I played rugby in high school, and I played my last year. And rugby has always been my favorite sport. And we went on tour when I was in high school. And I was in Carter Farms Park for the Triple Crown. And, uh, I, you know, the rugby thing over in England, Ireland, and Wales, uh, 
I, I mean, I, I love, I mean, it was my favorite sport. I, I, I only did enough football for rugby. That, that's how much I loved it. So that, the, the double question made me think of the beer we drank in high school when I was over in tour. <laughs> and it has, I don't know how long we've been, but I know we went over time, but it has been absolutely phenomenal. And thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to visit with us. And please, uh, I don't want to make this years before we talk again. Jeff, I love you. Thanks for having me. And uh, when my Big Ten Network gig is up, and I'm hoping it never is up, but if it is, I'm going to come north and watch you uh, take care of those special teams. All right, Coach, take care of yourself. I love you. Same thing. And, and uh, keep doing your thing. The world needs more Jerry Donardo. Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate it a lot.